church, but not today. Keep in mind that after the sermon, we'll be having com- uh, uh, a hymn, and then we'll be having communion. And so keep that in mind as well, please. Please turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Romans chapter 9. We've been going through Romans chapter 9 for a number of weeks, and actually I slowed down my sermon plans when I was looking at getting into Romans chapter 8 and Romans chapter 9. I thought, i got to slow down. Romans 9 is one of the most hotly debated uh, passages in the Bible, Romans chapter 9. And I hope and pray that as we've studied Romans 9 together, as we preach through Romans 9 together, as we preach through Romans together, there's been a time to help uh, build up your faith and give you renewed understanding of your faith. And what I've been convicted to preach to you is that throughout Romans chapter 9, uh, Paul is showing that God is consistent with his promises. God is consistent with his promises. And also, Paul is showing that God has a right to do with nations as he pleases. And I want to thank Steve for coming up, moving the flowers, because I have a tendency to bounce the podium around, and we would have made it a little bit of an exciting worship service today if, uh, if those had to fall over, so thank you. Anyways, so Romans 9, you know, as we go through Romans 9, we're wrapping it up today, as I said. As we go through Romans 9, we see the Apostle Paul con- uh, continuously um, use Old Testament passages. He's, he's pulling from... Isaiah and Hosea and many other passages to show God is being consistent with his promises. God is not being inconsistent. God is being consistent with his promises. So we're going to continue to show that today. So first, by way of introduction, I want to show this. Uh, I read this a few weeks ago. Even the best of humanists devise systems of ungrace, of ungrace to replace those rejected in religion. Benjamin Franklin settled on 13 virtues, 13 virtues that lack grace, 13 virtues of ungrace. And and here are some of his, just a few of them. He said silence. This is a virtue that Benjamin Franklin talked about, silence. He wrote, speak not but what may benefit others or yourself. Avoid trifling conversation. Another virtue Franklin talked about, frugality, frugality. Make no expense but to do good to others or yourself. That is, waste nothing. Industry, lose no time. Be always employed in something useful. Cut off all unnecessary actions. Industry, tranquility, tranquility. He wrote, be not disturbed at trifles or accidents, common or unavoidable. And Benjamin Franklin actually set up a book with a page for each virtue, limiting, uh, with a page for each virtue, lining a column in which to record defects. So he could actually record his defects, his lack of virtues. Choosing a different virtue to work on each week, Benjamin Franklin noted every mistake. And he started over every 13 weeks in order to cycle through the list four times a year. So he cycled through the list four times a year. For many decades, Benjamin Franklin carried his little book with him, striving for a clean 13-week cycle. As he made progress, he found himself struggling with yet another defect, pride. There is perhaps not one of the natural passions so hard to subdue as pride, he wrote. Disguise it, struggle with it, stifle it, mortify it as much as one pleases. It is still alive and will every now and then peep out and show itself. 
Franklin said, even if I could conceive that I had completely overcome it, I should probably be proud of my humility. You ever think about that, being proud of humility? Saying things like, I made it, I'm so humble. Franklin wrote those very good things, but guess what? They won't bring salvation. They won't bring salvation. My theme today is the Gentiles. Gentiles are non-Jewish people. In fact, the, the literal Greek definition would be the nations, the nations, the nations other than Israel. The Gentiles have found righteousness. The Jewish people, though following the law, have not been made righteous. And we must trust in Jesus. We must trust in Jesus. Here's an application. Trust in Jesus for your salvation. And do not let him be a stumbling, a stumbling block to you. We're going to see that it was prophesied some 700 years before Jesus. Isaiah prophesied that Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, that Jesus would be a stumbling block. Don't let Jesus be a stumbling block to us. So let's break this down. In context, Paul's been talking about how God can do with nations as he pleases. We see in Romans chapter 9, an antinomy. An antinomy. Now that's an interesting word, and I'm going to define it. But just to make sure you're all awake, can you repeat after me? Antinomy. Okay, so you're awake for the moment. An antinomy. And that means it's an apparent contradiction or a paradox. In Romans chapter 9 and throughout certain parts of the New Testament, it's not a contradiction, but it is an antinomy. That is an apparent contradiction or a paradox. This is a mystery. A mystery. There is a mystery which is God's sovereignty alongside the free will of human beings. We see a mystery between God's, God's providential will, where he is orchestrating things behind the scenes... And yet, free will of human beings. God is sovereign and people have free will. People are accountable for their actions. Yet God does have a predetermined plan. God has a predetermined plan. He's working it out behind the scenes and sometimes even in the scenes. And yet we have free will and yet we are accountable. And how does this all work? It's a mystery. There's a mystery regarding how much free will we have and how God orchestrates things to accomplish his will. Have any of you been in situations, and I would bet all of you have, and I have, in which you're going about your day doing something, and then later on you think, wow, God worked that out. I remember one day, another time, another place, years ago, and I was going through my day. I was trying to get to a hospital visit, that, and I wanted to get there earlier because I had certain other things to do. I was serving as the pastor of First Baptist Alliance at the time, and the things kept interrupting the day. And I finally get to the hospital visit, and I thought it might be a, a shorter visit, but family were there, and we conversated for about an hour. And so I'm really behind. I'm, I'm extremely type A. I'm extremely scheduled, okay? You need to know that. That's where I deal with my anxieties. And, and, the, and God continues to work on me with that. And so I'm, going, I'm behind my mental schedule, though certainly I'm okay. And I'm leaving that hospital visit, and I run into somebody going down the stairs. And he told me about some burdens him and his family were dealing with. And we got to pray right there. And I thought, I think God worked that out. I think God slowed down my schedule to say, trust me, I'm Lord of your schedule. I'm Lord of what's going on. And I want you to be here at this time to pray with someone. I didn't know that God was doing that, but he did it. There's been other times 
were in much a similar way the day before Christmas Eve. I think it was December 23rd, 2013, and we wanted to get out of the house and get Mercedes out of the house. Uh, Abigail had just been born, and so we go. We, we thought, we're going to just go to Walmart and walk around. Well, nobody should ever in their right mind go to Walmart two days before Christmas. If so, you need to really see a, a counselor or a therapist or something. And so we go to head to Walmart, and the parking lot is just packed, and we're like, yeah, we're not going there. So we went to Lowe's, which was across the street from Walmart. And I run into a pastor I knew there who ran into one of uh, a member of his congregation who was dealing with something, and we were able to lay hands on him in a kind way and, and pray for him right there. Again, I think God orchestrated it. And then last week, there was another time where something was, something was going on, and I was doing something, and, and I, I really believe God lined up things to have me at a certain place available to visit with someone and pray with them. You know, it's a mystery how our free will works, and yet God's predetermined plan works. God's providence works. But God is in charge. So this chapter in Romans 9 is showing that God is in charge. God is in control. So far, Paul has given examples in order to show that God is faithful and that God is in charge. Remember, Romans 9, verses 1 through 6, those first six verses, the apostle Paul said he would rather be accursed. That means sent to hell for the sake of his brethren. He desperately wanted to see the Israelites, the Jewish people saved, that he was willing to be a curse for them. And he has been answering, what about the Jewish people? Why haven't the Jewish people accepted Christ? Why have the Jewish people been rejecting the Messiah? And that's really what he's answering. And Paul is going on and on to show God is being consistent. In verses 7 through 13, that's Romans 9, 7 through 13, Paul showed that the promise to Abraham was going to go through Isaac, not Ishmael. And then through Jacob, not Esau. In verse 13, that's Romans 9, 13, God said that Jacob he has chosen, but Esau he has rejected. And then in verses 14 through 18, that's Romans 9, 14 through 18, Paul gives the example of Pharaoh. God raised Pharaoh up for his purposes, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart for his purposes. God has a right to do with nations as he pleases, and Pharaoh was ahead of Egypt. Further, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So Pharaoh is hardening his heart, and God is hardening Pharaoh's heart, but this is for God's purpose. And then in verses 19 through 29, which is what we looked at last week, Romans 9, 19 through 29, we talked about how God's providence, God has, God, God has providence, and we talked about how, that, how we cannot talk back to God. Remember the example Paul gave? He gave the example of a potter and the clay. The clay cannot talk back to the potter, Romans 9.20. A potter has a right to make some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. The potter has a right over the clay. God has a right over nations. God chose Israel for his purposes. Paul then used a few Old Testament quotes. Hosea 2.23 and Hosea 1.10 to show that God was going to call Gentiles, the nations, the non-Jewish people to himself. And then he used Isaiah 10.22-23 and Isaiah 1.9 to share that God was preserving a remnant. Isaiah written uh, some 700 years before Christ. And the Apostle Paul is quoting Isaiah to show God is being consistent with his promises. God has chosen a remnant. And that brings us to the end of Romans 9. So look at verse 30. Let's read verse 30. Romans 9, 30. Paul says, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he says, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. Notice here that Paul is asking a question. What are we to do with this? 
What shall we say? Paul is using a question format to explain what he has been explaining. Gentiles, that is non-Jewish people in the nations, they did not even pursue righteousness. They did not even follow the law. But guess what? They have attained it. They have obtained it. How did they receive this righteousness? They received it by faith. They received it by grace. They received it by trust. Look at Romans 1.17. You don't have to turn there. Romans chapter 1 verse 17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. How do the righteous live? By faith. How do we become Christians? By faith. How are we saved? By faith. By trusting in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Now move on. Let's look at verse 31. Romans 9, 31. And I'm going to go back to verse 30. And we're going to read it together. Romans 9, 30 through 31. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. And then verse 31. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Paul now is contrasting the Jewish people versus the Gentiles. The Gentiles had faith, and that faith brought righteousness. But on the other hand, the Jewish people, Israel, pursued the law, and the law that should lead to righteousness, but it did not, they did not succeed in reaching the righteousness. Why was it? Because they didn't have the faith. They weren't, they weren't trusting in the Messiah. They pursued the law, but that did not give them righteousness because it lacked faith. Remember the book of Galatians. Now, I've called Galatians the idiot's guide to Romans or the, the, cliff notes to the, the cliff notes to the book of Romans. If you remember in Galatians, it described the law as a tutor, a tutor to lead them to Christ. That's Galatians 3.24. The law was there to lead them to Christ, to the Messiah. Galatians 2.16 shows that a person is not justified by works of the law. But by faith in Christ, we are not justified by keeping the law. To be justified means to be declared righteous. We are not declared righteous by keeping the law. We are declared righteous by trusting in the Messiah, trusting in Christ. They thought the law would make them righteous in and of itself, but it was supposed to lead them to Christ. Paul is about to complete his argument. He has an argument, a logical argument, which is called a syllogism, a syllogism. So that's a word you can throw around at a party this week. A syllogism, which is a, a logical flow, a logical argument. And this is how it goes. Verse 30. Gentiles are righteous without the law. That's point one of the argument. Verse 31, point two. Israel followed the law of righteousness without receiving righteousness. Verse 32. Why? They did not pursue it by faith. They did not pursue it by faith. And they were stumbling over the stumbling stone. Who's a stumbling stone? Jesus became a stumbling stone to them. Paul substantiates his argument in verse 33 with another quote from Isaiah. Isaiah 28, 16. And Isaiah 8, 14 in that order. So let's read verses 32 through 33. Paul continues. Why? Why are the Israelites not made righteous? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. Verse 33, as it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That's a quote from Isaiah. Israel did not pursue the law with faith. They did not pursue the law with faith in the Redeemer, capital R. They did not pursue the law with faith in the Messiah to come. But listen to this. 
those that did pursue the law with faith in the Messiah were saved. Paul said, Paul quoted Isaiah saying, God was preserving a remnant. It's not that all Israel was lost. No, God preserved a remnant. Paul himself is Jewish. And he's a token example. And we're going to get into that in the, in the coming weeks. But what a picture we have here. They stumbled over the, stumbling, uh, over the stumbling stone who Isaiah wrote about. Jesus was the stumbling stone. So Paul quotes from Isaiah 28, 16, and then Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14. Isaiah prophesied around 700 years before Jesus that God was going to send the Messiah. The Messiah is Jesus. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. If you want a reference for that, look at Ephesians 2, 19 through 21 later. Jesus is the chief cornerstone, and they stumbled over the stumbling stone. People will and have stumbled over Jesus. However, those who believe in Jesus will not be put to shame, but will be saved. What does it mean to be, to be put to shame? It means appearing before the judgment seat, unclothed, not having the righteousness of Jesus. I like something that the New American Commentary shares. It says, sinners still reject the righteousness of God because they cannot earn it. It is absolutely free. They stumble over the offer because it deprives them of any proprietary involvement in their own salvation. You hear that? We still stumble over grace. We still think we want to earn it. We want to be able to say, I did this for my salvation, and that becomes a stumbling stone. Our salvation is by grace, through faith, and Jesus. That's Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. It is pride that brings people down. How deeply ingrained is our rebellious self-esteem? Too proud to accept God's willingness to forgive. Sinners stumble headlong into eternity with their stubborn sinfulness intact. I thought that was a really good quote. Then Carl F.H. Henry, a very profound evangelical in the 20th century, shared this. He said, many think that Christian religion has run its course. And that the, and that the gloom of Good Friday is now settling over the long history of the church. But they are wrong the reality of the resurrection cannot so easily be undone. In truth, it is the world of unbelievers that remains on notice of judgment. Christianity is not done. The resurrection is a glorious reality, and God is still at work saving people, calling people to himself. I want to look at this and make some applications here. This whole section is about faith. We must recognize that we must have faith in Jesus, right? We must have faith in Jesus. Our salvation is by faith in Jesus. And I broke down some of the spiritual disciplines in order to apply them. Because we don't do spiritual disciplines to earn our salvation. We do them to stay in tune with Jesus. To grow closer to Jesus. To remain in Jesus. To live with Jesus. And the truth is, at least I believe it is the truth, many Christians are not really active in their relationship with Jesus. We're not really oftentimes really living with Jesus because we're not in the word and we're not in prayer and we're not connected to the church family. We need the family of God. We need it. And we need the word of God. This is how God communicates to us. Certainly he communicates through the Holy Spirit, but he communicates through the Holy Spirit, through the word of God so many times. We need to be in the spiritual disciplines, but those don't save us. So as we pursue the moral law, which is doing what is right. As Christians, we're not saved by the law, but we, we are still called to keep the moral law. We are still called to love our neighbors or self. We are still called to do what is right. 
But as we pursue the moral law in doing what is right, we must recognize that we are only saved through faith in Jesus. We're not saved by keeping the law. This means that we are only saved by trusting in Jesus' death and resurrection for atoning for our sins. Another application. As we attend worship services and Bible studies, we must understand that we do that in order to grow closer to Jesus and to stay in tune with Jesus and to hear from God, not to earn our salvation. That's backwards. If we're doing something to earn our salvation, we're off. We do something because we're saved. We do that because we... we we're on the playing field for Lord Jesus, so to speak. We're, we're wearing the jersey of, of Jesus, so to speak. We, we score touchdowns for Jesus. We're, we're living with Jesus, you know? And that's why we're playing on that team. That's why we do the things he asks us to do. As we share the gospel, you know, as Christians, we're called to share the gospel. As we share the gospel, we must recognize we are only saved by Jesus' grace, and others can only be saved by Jesus' grace. It's not about earning our salvation. As we worship God, you know that we are called to worship God. As we worship God, we must recognize that worship does not save us. We worship to give back to God. We worship because he is worthy. As we pray, we must recognize we pray for support. And we, and we pray out of a relationship with God. Not to earn our salvation. As we serve others, you know that as Christians, we're called to serve and love other people. As we serve others, we must recognize we we do not serve to earn, to earn our salvation. We, we serve to love other people. We serve because that's what God calls us to do. As we fellowship with the church, we must recognize that we do that to spur one another on towards loving good deeds. That's Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. And not to be saved. We must recognize that Jesus was and still can be a stumbling stone. May we never... Allow Jesus to be a stumbling stone for us. No. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. I read the following, and I thought this is a really, really good illustration. With hundred, hundreds of things to see in Berlin, that is Berlin, Germany, few tourists pay attention to what lies under their feet. The four-inch by four-inch blocks of brass embedded in the pavement are easy to miss. But once you know they exist, you begin to come across them with surprising frequency. Each, each stone is engraved with the name and fate of an individual who has suffered under the Nazi regime. They are known as Stupperstein. Stupperstein, that's a German word. Or stumbling stones, that's what it means in translation, stumbling stones. There are over, get this, 8,000 of them in the German capital, and tens of thousands of them are spread across European countries, making it the largest decentralized monument in the world. And get this, they're called stumbling stones. The idea was first conceived by German artist Gunter Denmig in 1992 to commemorate individual victims of the Holocaust. Each block, which begins with here lived, is placed at exactly the last place where the person lived freely before he or she fell victim to Nazi terror and was deported to an extermination camp. Unlike the other Holocaust memorials that focus only on the Jewish people, the Stolpersteins, the Stumbling Stones, honor all the victims of the Holocaust. All the victims of the Holocaust. Although not everyone supports the drive to do this, to put these stones in places, Michael Friedrichs Friedlander, the craftsman who makes each Stolperstein, 
spoke in support of the project. Now listen to this. He said this. He said, I can't think of a better form of remembrance. If you want to read the stone, you must bow before the victim. I thought, wow, that is very profound. Of course, that's talking about a monument, recognizing the victims. This passage is saying, don't stumble over the stumbling stone of Jesus. And as Paul continues to make his argument, which is going to continue in Romans chapter 10 and Romans chapter 11, he's continuing to make his argument that God has been consistent with his word. God cannot lie or change his mind. God has been consistent with his word. God said that Israelites would stumble over the stumbling stone of Jesus, and Jesus would be a stumbling stone. Later in Romans chapter 11... The Apostle Paul is going to talk about a partial hardening of Israelites. But later, that hardening will be lifted, and many Israelites, in fact, he says all Israelites will be saved. And right now, as I've said before, there are many, many, many Israelites, many Jewish people that have been saved in the last hundred years. Right before the Holocaust, there was great revival in that area of Europe. But right now, we can turn and apply it to each and every one of us. Is Jesus a stumbling stone to us, or is he Lord of our life? I'm going to give a prayer, and then we're going to sing a song, getting ready for communion. Then we'll take communion. As we take communion, I encourage you, make sure, make sure you repent of any sin that's within your heart. As we sing this song here in just a minute, which Steve's going to come up to lead near the cross, if anyone, I think Nick's around, if anyone did not get one of the prepackaged communion cups, make sure you raise your hand and Nick will bring it to you. There's Nick. So raise your hand. But first I'm going to pray and then Nick's available to take those to anyone that didn't get it. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for our salvation in Jesus, freely given. Lord God, I pray right now, even as we go to communion, that anyone here who has not repented and turned their life over to you, May today be a day of salvation. May today be a day to turn their life over to you, confessing they're a sinner in need of a Savior, believing in you as the one and only Savior, trusting in you, and committing their life to you. May today be the day to firmly make the decision to be with you in order to become like you, to learn and do all that you say, and arrange their affairs around you. Lord God, may we always arrange our affairs around you, arrange our lives around you. Make you Lord of our life. And right now as we sing this hymn, preparing for communion, Holy Spirit, I ask that you convict us all of anything we need to pray to you about, confess to you before we take communion. In Jesus' name, amen.